Welcome to the Lead with Levity podcast, where we talk about what makes or breaks the employee experience, what you can do to contribute in a positive way in your organization, and how you can help others. And you know, we're kind of in a really interesting time right now where people are having to redefine workplace communication. You know, what's appropriate? What do they mean by that message? How can I connect with people I don't see anymore? What is this new tool they want me to learn? (laughs) And if you're ready to think about the way you communicate in a new way, stick around. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Donahue. She studies communication patterns within and between generations, and her focus is generational differences in digital communication. Mary lets us know when a meme is your best friend and why your coworker likes to send those long, drawn-out emails. Good stuff. It's time for a sneak peek. Where do we typically see communication breaking down between generations in the workplace? Is it is it mostly over email or is it because they're they're missing those social cues? Where where does it break down? Emails, texts, online meetings that don't use video. There's no social cues. You can't see someone's face. Here's an interesting fact. In 1970, when you were at the workplace, you were watching a conversation or you were involved. You understood 80% of what was going on because you could see the body language. In some cases, you could hear the tone. For example, if your boss was storming across the office, you knew, hey, not going to ask for a Friday off. Not a good day. But digitally, you don't know. So what's now happened is through a digital communication platform, you only understand 20% versus 80% 50 years ago. And if we look at levity at work, I mean, this is a huge breakdown because people will send you something like, say, for example, you're, you're a 50-something boss and your young millennial sends you like, goes, hey, this is Hilaire and sends you a meme. You're like, dude, what are you doing? You should be working. I shouldn't even be looking at this. Where millennials like, this sharing, like it's not offensive. Like I don't get it. And that's what, you know, when you see, is there a generational breakdown? The answer is a definitive yes, based on the data. Our opinion is, oh no, there's no generational breakdown. Everything's fine. We're all individuals. Communication is an individual. No, communication is a tribe practice. And now on with the show. I'm Dr. Heather Walker, and this is Lead with Levity. I help leaders create awesome work environments where communication is light, enjoyable, and uplifting. I shed light on the power of levity at work. Imagine just how much you can get done in that kind of environment. Come explore with me. Welcome back to the Lead with Levity podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Walker. And with me today is Dr. Mary Donahue of Donahue Learning. Mary is an educator, an author, a speaker, and a television personality. 
In fact, you may recognize her from some of her TED Talks. Now, Mary's focus right now is bridging communication gaps as well as digital wellness. And I'm very excited to have her on the show. So welcome, Mary. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about Donahue Learning? What do you all do? How did you get started with that concept? And give us a little bit of background. Originally, my dissertation work was in mentoring. And the concept was creating structured mentoring, and still is. We have the Donahue Mentoring System that bridges the gap in communication. It created, um, at first, it was 16 conversations, and as time went on, it came down to nine conversations, nine leadership conversations uh, that help people excel in their culture. And one day, uh, when I was working with Walmart, and I was in Arkansas, a gentleman by the name of Jabal Floyd asked me in 2013, a very, very hot day in Arkansas, why aren't millennials responding the same to the leadership cues as every other generation? Uh, Mr. Floyd had been with Walmart at this point 30 years. He had worked with Mr. Sam, the found, Mr. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, and it was just a fabulous mentor. He's one of the smartest leaders I've ever had the privilege to work for. And I said, well, sir, I don't know, but let me, let me go ahead and research that. And I started to research it. And that led me into um, going back to my first love, which was psychology. And essentially what I began to look at is the concept of digital psychology. And next year I'm actually opening a digital psychology practice here in Toronto on the West Coast. Digital psychology is a relatively new discipline and it combines theory, really, from the world of behavioral economics, psychology, digital marketing, to create digital communications that are compelling and persuasive to our unconscious mind. And because what I found from Jabal way back when in 2013, really, you know, I really started the research in 2014 when I quit teaching, was these generational anchoring benchmarks. And they come from digital psychology because when we introduce the smartphone into our workplace, language changed. How we communicated with each other as human beings changed. Right. And it's not like we haven't seen this before in history, Heather. You that you know that and I know that. Mm -hmm. But our brains haven't been able to process this change. It's only been since two thousand and seven. You just dropped a lot of stuff that I want to unpack. <laughs> when Can I take it back to the 16 conversations down to nine? Sure. What yeah. kind of conversations are these that, that leaders are having? What I found in my original research, my background, as you mentioned earlier, uh, before I went to grad school, was in public relations. And I was on television and had a newspaper column and all those wonderful things. But my background, what I made my living really eventually at was PR. And what we began to see in public relations was this disconnect, particularly after the crash in 2008, between leaders and their followers. Trust was broken. And I remember really thinking about this and I started as when you're on television, your job is really to listen. Mm. And if you're very clever at TV, 
when you listen well, you're able to ask questions that your audience wants the answers to versus what you want to say. So what I was able to do was begin to listen to leaders and then I would be able to interview their followers. And leaders would say, well, they're just concerned about money and they're just doing this and they're just doing that. And um, really what was happening is that's their concern because of their focus on shareholders. Right. They're just projecting. They're just, you know, they're covering their butt. Mm-hmm. And what we found is directors and management were, were beginning to look at, wow, I'm really seeing a diverse workforce and things aren't the same as Mr. Floyd pointed out. So what can I do? If you go back into the learning research, for example, you know, why universities were established, I think Harvard's 260 years old. Mm-hmm. Harvard actually used mentoring as a form of education. I mean, if you read the book, John Adams, it talks about um, President Adams having six professors at Harvard and how these professors taught him the classics. And then he went out and he began to practice law, but then he went back to them for more advice. And if you look at mentoring, mentoring was developed by the Greeks as a leadership training tool. So I, with the help of a really brilliant professor, uh, Dr. Michael Gilbert at my alma mater, Central Michigan University, mm-hmm. uh, really began to look at this idea of structured conversation because when humans are in fight or flight, the one thing that stops them from doing that, and as you know, in 2008, the majority of us who were working were in fight or flight right. because the world was crashing down around us. And structure and learning reduces fight or flight. As we became more dependent on technology, that gave people like myself more data. And we were able to identify nine leadership conversations. And that's how you listen, how you learn, and how you influence. And then the next three are how you accept feedback, give feedback, and have difficult conversations. And the next three are your ethics and your morals and how they drive performance. So when I originally designed the mentoring program, it was 16 weeks. It was designed as a semester program um, for students at universities and professionals in the field. And then what we found is 16 weeks was just too long because as we began to depend more on our phones, we began to have shorter attention spans. Right. <laughs> and that's just the fact of it. So that's the the essence of the nine conversations. And so in 2013, Walmart was using the mentoring program. And because it's so structured, it reduces the stress in the relationship between the mentor and mentee, which means you can match people based on whatever system you want to match them, or we've pulled names out of a hat and matched people. And we get the same results. And the return on investment for a company is 79% over 13 months. And why that is, is because your brain loves structure. So as I began to move on with these, I began to see a huge difference in the data in 2012. So Gallup, as you know, Heather measures engagement in the workplace. And in 2012, we began to see quite the shift in engagement. It started to drop significantly. And again, that was because of our dependence on the phone, our dependence on email, uh, 
offices started closing offices and telling people to work at home. Now, how do you have a leadership conversation if you can't understand the social cues you're seeing? What are the social cues in digital? So if you want, we could do a little test and I can demonstrate that for you. Let's do it. I'm game. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, prepare yourself. Okay. I'm focused. How are you? I am fine. How's your day so far? Would you like the full answer or <laughs> what I'm supposed to say? So far, it's been wonderful. I've, I've been able to get out of bed, meet with you, and learn all about digital communication, digital psychology. So far, it's been wonderful. Fantastic. Now, here's an interesting fact, Heather. Your mammalian brain patterning in the middle part of your brain, which is just over your ears, process that. And your instinctive brain was like, she's just asking me some social nicety. Right. Does she really want to get into the depth of my relationship, of my sleep, of what I ate, <laughs> how much coffee I had? No, absolutely not. Right. Because, you know, we're doing an interview and it's 622 in the morning. Right. And so what your brain is doing is recognizing social cues or patterns of behavior. Now, if we're on a team together, and on average, on average, a knowledge worker receives over 115 emails a day. And those, of those 115 emails a day, 40% have to be answered. And that same knowledge worker, this isn't someone at a director's level. This isn't someone uh, who's an executive VP. This is just a person like us, an everyday person, has to spend at least four hours a day in meetings. That leaves less than one hour a day to actually get the work done you were hired to do. So now you're working late. Because you have your phone, you're working you know, 20 out of 24 hours in some cases. And you're working on weekends and you're working at your kids' games and you're doing all kinds of things. So there's a number of things to unpack in that. But here's a continuation of the test. You and I are on a team. Mm -hmm. And I send you an email that says, how are you? You look at that knowing you have 115 other emails to get through and you're like, Mare, I really don't have time to answer this. You're cuckoo. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just put that in the file that I review later, answer later, which is the trash. And a few minutes later, I send you another email that says, how's your day? You're like, wait a minute. What do you mean? How's my day? Do you know something I don't know? Are we getting a new boss? Is something going on? Are there layoffs? What's happening? Because you can't read the social cues in that email, your brain begins to go into flight, fight or flight. The thing is, language is the basis of every decision you make. It's the construct that guides you. But Language through technology, defined as emails, texts, and online meetings, doesn't have the same social cues. And so that's what I've developed. Once we begin to identify those social cues, then we can identify the humor, the sarcasm. We can begin to understand how the different brains in the workplace work. All of those kinds of exciting and interesting things that um, we've never been able to do because we've never had the right patterns to train their brain. Now, the listeners may be saying, oh, yeah, what makes you so great? How did you create those patterns? Well, I actually worked with over 27,000 people, 27,000 people. And I base my work 
on data. So with my quantitative data, um, my confidence level was 95%. My margin of error was 3%. And my response rate was 11%. So that's pretty solid. And then if we go to the qualitative data, which is journals, which is the feedback people give me, which is the interviews, we looked at um, over 5,000 documents, and then we triangulated that data and coded that data with 225 other academic articles. What we wanted to make sure of is that this was rooted in science mm. versus our opinions on whether there was differences. And the differences we found, Heather, in language are startling. Language is learned in school. You learn social cues, really, when you're school age. So, you know, depending right. on when you start school, three or four to probably 12. And that's when your brain's absorbing it. So, therefore, language and learning are the keys to understanding how we communicate on digital. And I found very different patterns in the generations on how they communicate. And once you begin to identify those digital patterns, you begin to be an incredibly successful communicator. So much so that when we started beta testing this, and I had the great privilege of, of testing this with a number of companies, um, Microsoft is one of them. We found when we taught people the patterns, even briefly in micro learning, mm -hmm. they were 10% less stressed, 10% more productive, and found 10% more time for themselves in their week, which lowers their risk of burnout, which is really what I study by 10% because they're all correlated. So can we talk about these patterns? Is this the same as the anchoring benchmarks that you mentioned earlier? Yes. Each generation has their own anchoring benchmarks based in the nine conversations I've told you. Okay. And um, the first thing you have to understand is how the brain, the mammalian brain, right over your ear is processing information. Um, at the front of your head is your thinking brain. That's where a lot of language, that's where all your language is processed. Um, you know, when you're quick-witted mm -hmm. or you're, you're clever, it's all in your thinking brain, right over your forehead. Um, patterns, your mammalian brain, is where a pattern of behavior is recognized. So if you're walking down a dark alley and you hear feet running after you, you know your, your mammalian brain knows that pattern could be danger and your fight or flight, which is in your neck, the, the reptilian part of your brain says, get the heck out of there. <laughs> right. Well, in the workplace, what happens is um, instinctively you see this message like, how's your day? And your mammalian brain says, hey, I don't, I don't know what that pattern is. I, 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 I'm confused. And how are you? Why is she asking me these questions? Again, there's no anchoring moment. There's nothing to bind you or help you understand that message. So your reptilian brain goes into fight or flight. But what's interesting is if you're over 40, you understand technology and communication through technology from a task point of view. And the simplest way to break that down for you is you were educated in single file rows in class. You were educated as a solitary person. It was your responsibility to sit in your desk to do your work. And eventually you worked in groups, but you were much older when you had group work. You worked alone for the majority of your projects. Um, and we call that a task default brain on 
technology. And so what that means is when I send you an email, particularly as a Gen X, um, I, I want you to give me information related to a task. I want to know when this is done, how it's done, why it's done, the who, what, when, where, and how. Now we go to people under 40 who are millennials, 40 and under. And we have cuspers plus or minus five on either side. But if you're a millennial or Gen Z, you grew up going to school in groups. So desks were grouped together. And that's the economics of education. We pulled a lot of money out of education by the time millennials were in school in the 80s so that we could lower taxes. Mm-hmm. And that's true in throughout North America. And so Maria Montessori said, hey, if you work in groups, the stronger help the weaker and the weaker help the stronger learn more. So we're going to put everybody in groups because it's a cheaper way to teach. We can have larger classrooms. But if you grow up in a group, you grow up understanding the democracy of a group. Now, compound that with millennials have been online since the fifth grade. Even the eldest millennials have been doing SMS since they were in the fifth grade. So now, instead of walking home with friends, you can go online and be with anyone and share opinions with anyone and do anything. So your whole world becomes sharing for learning, which is very different than accomplishing a task for learning. Right. So we call that a share default brain. So that's the first difference. And then you look at, and and I'm just going through, I'm not going through the behavior economics. I'm just going to go through the learning economics of this. Sounds good. We can get to listening and everything else (laughs) another time. So this is the first conversation. So then if we look at learning, well, how were boomers treated? Well, they were very auditory. They're very, um, they studied Latin. They knew the roots of words. Um, Their high school education was a very deep sound education in the classics, which are, of course, very logical and very word-based. Now, we start to move to Gen X. And if we look at Gen X, we start to see more money being pulled from education. But we also see with um, the commonality of television, the shift to education through visual. And that was the first time new math was introduced and flashcards were introduced. And you used to get a card from a box and do your work, but it was a visual card. And your room began to be decorated with all these letters, even in kindergarten, and you became a very visual room. Well, once we started getting into millennials, was the first time as a collective, education started focusing much more on self-esteem which works well with sharing. Mm -hmm. So as a group, we're not going to compete as much. We're going to support more. We're going to think about the self-esteem of a person. And so the idea of winning was, you know, we still told them they had to focus on an A to get into a good school, but they became a much more um, supportive and less competitive group. What's also interesting about this group is they're the first group that in terms of language really was forced to deal with two parents working, multi-divorces, and even though they grew up in the best economic times, 
what they really desired was time and conversation with their parents. They had lots of money, but it was really talking to their parents and traveling with their parents became quite the treat. Because as you, whether you grew up in a single parent household or a dual parent household or a step parent household, whenever you got to travel, it was a treat and you would spend time and you would talk because this was the first latchkey group of children. So we suddenly see the currency of a generation shifting from money, which was Boomer and Gen X, and to conversation and time. And we can see that articulated in how they choose to spend their money, which is going away, which is talking and they talk on their phones. Everybody talks about the rise of the phone. We also see with this generation, the currency of trust broken because they saw in 2008 is when we really shifted the narrative of corporate from, yes, this is a fair world. If you work hard, you'll get anywhere you want to, hey, if you're old, you're white and you're male, don't worry about it. You're not going to jail, even if you destroy the economy because you've got loads of money. Everybody mm. else, oh, sorry, you suck. You're going to lose your job. So when people say to me, why do millennials not trust? It's because when you plant corn, you get corn. Right. And you planted the seeds of distrust. You planted the seeds of miscommunication. So now look at Gen Z. When they go into the classroom and they're in groups, and this is the group under 20, um, it probably won't switch till 2021, which is what's called mm -hmm. the alpha generation. I don't name them. Don't worry. And um, the first thing we teach them is fear. How to hide underneath your desk because a bad man's going to come in and shoot you. It's called lockdown. And then this is the first generation that was born into technology. From a psychological standpoint, some of these kids were actually born on the internet. People put it on Facebook, their child's birth. So this is the first generation we're actually starting to see hide from technology. They still use it, but they use it in short little messages that disappear. Um, they game all these people that are trying to follow them. They understand technology in the same way we would understand um, old-fashioned math or, or something like that. It's just a way of life for them. Right. And so we see a very logical generation that's very detached. They're very, very hardworking because they grew up in a constant fear of a recession. And um, their parents, um, it was a totally different parenting style because of that recession. So that's what I mean by language. And if we go back to your main point on levity, um, it's understanding that with Gen Z, the generation, they love memes, short, quick little messages that just disappear. You know, they're funny. I think the one that I'm seeing most often now in my daughter's sending to me is um, the one I'm going to tell my kids. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but if you go on Instagram or Twitter, um, you just make stuff up. You're going to tell your kids it's true. So there's funny things like uh, people saying that a rap is the national anthem or something and they laugh <laughs> and it's silly and people know it's not true. But um, they love that type of humor right? Um, because they communicate in a visual and auditory capacity where millennials communicate through a kinesthetic capacity. Um, Gen X communicates through a visual capacity and boomers communicate through an auditory capacity. 
I used to love vines personally, and and those are no more. Um, the yeah. little very short video clips, but I also do love memes and and the snaps. Um, but I'm a little bit too old to sound cool when I say stuff like that. So I'll, I'll stop. Um, (laughs) so I guess a question that I have for you is where do we typically see communication breaking down between generations in the workplace? Is it, is it mostly over email or is it because they're, they're missing those social cues? Where, where does it break down? Uh, it breaks down through, and, and I think the simplest way is emails, texts, online meetings that don't use um, video. There's no social cues. You you can't you can't see someone's face. Here's an interesting fact: in 1970, when you were at the workplace you were watching a conversation or you were involved in a conversation, you understood 80% of what was going on, whether you heard the words or didn't hear the words, because you could see the body language. In some cases, you could hear the tone. For example, if your boss was storming across the office, (laughs) you knew, hey, not going to ask for a Friday off. Right. Not a good day. Right. But digitally, you don't know. You send this email and you don't know the sentence structure that triggers the brain. When you send a text, you hear your own voice in your head. When you read a text or an email, you hear your own voice in your head. I call it the voice in your head syndrome. But that's not the way the person meant it, that you assume you understand. And so what's now happened is through a digital communication platform, You only understand 20% versus 80% 50 years ago. And that is a direct correlation to the phone. So we began to see that understanding start to slip away the more we began to use technology around 1999-2000 when the Blackberry started invading our workforce. Right. And Poor Blackberry. um, (laughs) Poor Blackberry. And I still love that darn keyboard. We found an old one uh, a few weeks ago in our house and it, it was so tiny. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, no. How did you like this thing? It was just so tiny. Our phones these days are tablets that you put to your face. So um, exactly. So really that's what we're seeing. So let me play devil's advocate here. Um, sure. So I know that we're talking about generational differences in the workplace. Mm-hmm. However, when you don't have the ability to see a person and you, you can't uh, tell what's going on with their nonverbals, um, can't you come up with communication breakdowns even within the same generation? Is that really a, a multi-generational issue? Because it, to me, it seems like more of a just this is a, a communication issue across the board. From the data, um, I've seen it primarily between generations. Okay. And the biggest breakdown is between Gen X and millennials. Okay. I understand what you're saying, but what we're seeing is millennials, for example, if they're in the same cohort, um, and there are distinct differences between male, female, 
I wouldn't say distinct. There are slight differences between male, female, as it relates to competition conversations between where you grew up, urban, rural, suburban, but they're not big enough to have a breakdown. We're seeing massive breakdowns in terms of connecting between a task-focused brain and a share-focused brain. And what's happening is when you grow up with someone in the same way and you're educated in the same way, is you really do begin to understand the patterns of communication. Um, you, know, you, you use similar words, you use similar technology, which is another brain recognition. It's another anchoring moment. It's the technology you choose. Um, for example, Gen X loves PowerPoint and loves email. And, you know, they'll text, but rarely do you text a client unless you've become grand friends with a client. <laughs> now, when you send a text or you send an email, it's usually in the form of a to-do list if you're over 40-ish. And it's just like, boom, boom, boom. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. Um, you just give direction and you assume that people can, can contextualize it. Like, okay, right. like we're all on the same page. Well, if you're in a share group and you're used to working as a group and you're constantly getting one PowerPoint, your mind goes to technology like Slack, which is, hey, why aren't we all having this super transparent conversation and then editing it on Slack so that we're not having multiple versions of something? Mm -hmm. And why aren't we using this? And Gen X is like, look, I don't have time to learn this. I'm really, I've got a lot to do because they're also the smallest cohort in Bindverse. That's right. And they're pushing back. And where millennials, it's incredibly natural. So Gen X using technology is still like, oh my God, Shift F7, my computer shuts down. Oh my <laughs> God, I could get a virus. All of those things. Right. Where millennials are like, well, so what? It shuts down. Just bring it back up. Get your stuff. Like, who cares? Mm -hmm. Like, they're so used to technology. And again, those are just two, like, silly little differences. So what does this lead to? Like, how does this begin to break down? You know, what begins to happen is you begin to want to look at digital tone, which is really the technology you use. And then digital social cues the words, the sentence structure, digital body language, the, like all of those different kinds of things. And that's really what I begin to orient people to. Um, and the key is to begin to introduce your brains to these patterns and categories of the different brains that are in your workplace. And we had to do this back in 1590. It's not like our brains haven't had to do this. Before. Right, right. We've had this to decode. After the advent yeah, like we had to decode different people. Um, and that was the great vowel crisis when it was the first time we started using long, short, long form vowels and short form vowels. And our brain had to rethink how we taught people, how we conversed with people, how we wrote, how we educated people. So, you know, the printing press was huge, but this idea of how language changed was introducing new patterns to our brain. And it was the first time that grandparents didn't under understand grandchildren. Um, I mean, again, it's funny when we think about these things, but if you really think, oh, okay, you know, let's just optimize the way we think. And if you can get 10% more time to yourself a week, that's four hours to do what you want to do that's not at work. Isn't it worth learning about this? And I think right now, in terms of patterns of communication, 
we're in um, like the, I call it the model T, like everything's black, like we're just learning, but other scholars are really grasping onto this and learning and, and pushing this forward as well, um, which I find really exciting. And if we look at levity at work, I mean, this is a huge breakdown because people will send you something like, say, for example, you're, you're a 50 something boss mm-hmm. and you're young millennial sends you like goes hey this is hilaire and (laughs) sends you a meme you're like dude what are you doing you should be working right what if someone finds this yeah like oh my god i shouldn't even be looking at this where millennials like just sharing like it's not offensive like i don't get it Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, when you see, is there a generational breakdown? The answer is a definitive yes, based on the data. Our opinion is, oh, no, there's no generational breakdown. Everything's fine. We're all individuals. Communication is an individual. No, communication is a tribe practice. <laughs> like our brain works to the tribe. And individually, we contextualize it differently. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So what do we do when we have those breakdowns in communication and the millennial sends their supervisor a meme and it doesn't go over well? How do we overcome those breakdowns and recover from those things? You have to learn the patterns of behavior, which takes us back to our first part of the conversation, which is how does each generation listen? How do they learn? Um, and, And how does that influence the technology they use? How do they accept feedback and give feedback? How do they have difficult conversations through digital? And really, how do their ethics and morals affect their performance on digital? Um, And you're saying, what the heck are you talking about? Well, with ethics and morals, we talk about mentoring. Can you mentor someone that you never see? The answer is yes. Can you be a client with someone you never see? The answer is yes. As long as you begin to learn their digital language, like their digital body language, their digital tone, as long as you learn digital mirroring, which is matching the language you see. If your boss never sends you a meme, chances are your boss isn't checking out memes. Don't send them a meme. Like think about Good this point. Good from point. the standpoint of this isn't about you. It's about what you want to achieve and understand how to achieve it. Your reticular activator, everybody in listening on this podcast right now, is going to start to think about what I've said. And they're going to start to look at, even if we just look at auditory language, kinetic language, um, or visual language, and you look at your own messaging, do you send long, wordy emails? Well, more than likely, you're probably a boomer, and you have a great grasp of language, and you're very clever with language, and you like to take time over language, and you like everything grammatically correct, because that's how you were educated. And your reticular activator, which is located in the mammalian part of your brain, um, begins to notice differences. And so you'll start to see that and you're like, oh, okay, so that means from a digital mirroring standpoint, I should respond and make sure my response is a little more formal and is grammatically correct in a respectful manner. Now, if you're Gen X, your emails usually look like a to-do list. They're short, to the point, here's the directions, go. And you usually attach a PDF. (laughs) Rarely do you attach a link unless it's for a conference. 
or, you know, a conference link or something like that that you trust. Um, so, you know, when you're responding to that person, oh, I should probably respond in the same way. Now, when you hear them on a digital brainstorm, let's say, for example, you're on a Zoom call and you don't have your video on and you hear them using visual words, use visual words because the Gen Xer will begin, the reticular activator will begin to think, oh, this person gets me. Oh, okay, I'll respond. If you're a millennial, you tend to be much shorter because you grew up sharing. And SMS was actually guided by, I think, 160 uh, characters in the beginning. Yes. And so, of course, you have shorter messages. And to get around that, you attach a little link. There used to be something called OWL that shortened all the links that you sent so that you could get it into all of those things. Mm. And so, um, when it, as a Gen Xer, when I see that, I think, oh, okay. I also know this generation loves structure because their parents created play dates versus play times for them. So I know when I am sending them a to-do, I need to get this in their calendar because they live by their calendar because all of them grew up with a calendar on the fridge of who was where and when. Again, coming from a working family where two family members were working and everything was managed. And then if we look at Gen Z, they don't even use email. So when you're bringing them into your workforce, you have to begin your orientation properly, totally differently. Um, with groups that we're talking to now, some of the largest companies in the world, we're saying you actually have to teach them how to use a phone with a cord if you want them to use a phone with a cord. Some of them have never, ever seen one before, except in their grandparents' house. They have no idea what voicemail messages are. Wait, hold And on. if you call them. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, Gen Z, what, yeah. what age 2000 is to that? 20. 2000 to... So that's 2000 to uh, 2020. Oh, wow. Okay. And they're just like, going <laughs> into the workforce a little bit now. Okay. And there are students, right? Right. And um, like we're seeing huge problems in university. My own daughter, um, funny story in terms of understanding digital body language, uh, my daughter in her first year of school at York went so excited, like so excited. She used to like, we used to say, oh my God, you're in big girl school. This is so exciting. <laughs> and she had come to classes with me when I taught since she was a baby. And my deans were always really accommodating about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so she wasn't unfamiliar with a school in large classrooms. And she got into the classroom, she was sitting, you know, right in the front row, and she was so, so keen. And there was like 160 17-year-olds in this class, or 18-year-olds, you know, in typical first-year class. And she said, and mommy, in walks this lady that's as old as grandma, <sighs> and she has a bundle buggy. And she hasn't posted anything on Moodle, which is like Blackboard or any of those things, like it's where the kids go right. to, to search to prepare for their class. And she says, well, I'm just going to set up the overhead. Huh. And she said, mommy, all of us looked at our phone and we searched for the app overhead and we couldn't <laughs> find it. And we looked and we looked and she kept fussing with something, mommy, and trying to get stuff out of her bundle buggy. And then she said the overhead isn't working and she sounded really mad. So we were all still looking because we figured we were in trouble. And then I got this great idea, mommy. I looked overhead 
<laughs> and I looked at the ceiling and I waited and so did my friends. We all began looking overhead and we were all getting really nervous that she was going to teach overhead. And I said, then what happened, sweetheart? And she said, she took out some plastic and put it on a machine <laughs> with a light. That's an overhead mummy. And I said, what'd you do? She said, I left. I was like, this is not going to work out for me. Oh no! And this is what we mean by understanding where these kids come from. If a generation is growing up on technology, you have to accommodate to them. You can't just say, this is the way I've always taught for 50 years, and this is the way I'm going to continue to teach, and you have to suck it up. Because today, the kids have thousands of other choices to learn. That's right. And that's a huge switch. They're still going to learn. But, you know, again, you plant corn, you get corn. If you bring kids up by giving them homework online, and you have them learning online through Google Classroom, and then you throw them into an environment without giving them a heads up, saying, hey, we're not doing this, we're not doing this, I'm going to do this. And they're fine if you prepare them. But don't surprise a generation that's growing up learning lockdown. They're going to leave. Hmm. And again, going back to generations. And, and I hope that I've answered your question. No, you did. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it, <laughs> to me, it's, it, again, to me, it's all the time I hear, this is, this is crap. This is, you know, it's blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I'm saying to people, I totally appreciate your opinion, but it's your opinion. I'm looking at the data. And if you start to notice the differences in how we're communicating and the language patterns we're using and our choice of technology that we're using and the words we're using, you begin to see a huge difference. And once you just make a slight shift, it's like from 1590 to 1700, all of a sudden you just speed up that time and we're all communicating very well. And we go into this Victorian age of beautiful art and beautiful language and we're under a lot less stress and a lot less pressure. Um, now, I understand the Victorian age wasn't great. Don't worry. But I'm just <laughs> giving you an example on how it can just shift your world. There's so much pain in our world right now that if you can find a little bit of time to take away some of that pain, I think, and, and from my point of view as a healer and a teacher, that's what I really want to try and do. And this is one way to do it. Wise words. Mary, thank you so much for sharing today. Um, this has been really helpful. And listeners, I hope that you're paying attention to the conversation and you're thinking about what's going on in your, your work environment and who you're working with. Are you in an environment where there are uh, several generations working at the same time? And how are you going to tailor your message so that you can actually get things done in a productive as well as engaging way? Mary, is there anything going on on, on the horizon for you that you'd like to share with us today? Thank you so much. Yes. A couple of really great things. First of all, I am opening my digital psychology practice on both coasts. Yay! And it's it's focusing. I know I'm so excited. <laughs> and I'm I'm just I'm I'm an East Coast girl by heart, but I'm really loving the West Coast. I must say, kind of grooving to that. <laughs> and it's really available for executives and teams that want to understand this and begin to practice it. Um, and learn and, and just really enjoy the self-indulgence of learning about yourself and learning about others. We're also launching our app called Footle, F-O-O-T-L-E. 
And uh, with hmm. my partners, what we've done is we've created um, a digital app that helps you prepare and detox your mind before you go into a brainstorming meeting or a status meeting or an acceptor feedback um, conversation, acceptor give feedback conversation or a difficult conversation. And all of that footle is based on my learnings from Albert Einstein. Uh, Dr. Einstein used to take quiet time every day. He would take a bubble bath and his wife would guard the door. And in that bubble bath, he didn't read. He didn't do anything. He just had quiet time to contemplate. And what I found is because we don't have quiet time in our day, going back to the 115 emails, four hours in meetings, rushing around to the kids, being on our phone all the time, we need to have that minute where we're not on something to detox our brain so that we can focus on the next thing and be more successful. And um, the, all the language patterns and everything I've talked about today are built into that. Uh, so I'm very, very excited about that. And next year in the fall, my new book comes out. So I'm excited. What's that book going to be about? Exactly this. It gives you everything. It's called Message Received. It was supposed to come out this year and it's still on Amazon. I think Amazon still says I'm coming out. But unfortunately, <laughs> I was a car, in a car accident. Believe it or not, I was hit by someone who was texting. And it really stopped me from having the ability to be a clear communicator. So I had to just uh, had to rethink that. And now uh, the book's almost done again. And my kind, kind people at McGraw-Hill are, are saying it's okay, and they've been incredibly supportive. But as I'm sure you know, it's incredibly frustrating when you can't get something out. And yes, there's a lot of humor in it. And I do use my own family and friends as an example of how miscommunication in the voice in your head can really mess you up. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear about the accident and how that caused the delay. I'm hoping that, you know, sometimes things like that happen and we're all the better for it because we're able to use that experience and maybe even incorporate that into some of the material. So I have, and thank you for mentioning that. It makes me feel better. I always feel I'm disappointing people. No, like not, a Gen at Xer. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of like when you're working on a paper and the computer crashes or something like that and you want to just oh. you, you lose it, you know? Um, but then you go back and after you've calmed down and you start working again, you realize that the second version is so much better than what it was going to be. So, um, yeah, I'm sure that the, the reboot of it is going to be amazing. Oh, thank you, Heather. Thanks for listening to the Lead with Levity podcast. Go to www.leadwithlevity.com to access show notes and other resources.